Father, we do bring you praises. We praise you because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you because of what he has accomplished for us. And Lord, we pray that we would look upon him today as we consider what happened on the cross. We would not look upon him as someone who's smitten of you because of his wrongdoing. But we would see that he has laid down his life for his sheep. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. I pray that they would see themselves in need of a Savior. Call them to the truth of the gospel. And for all of us, Lord, may we see that it is our sin that put them on the cross. And Lord, we have found forgiveness and joy and peace everlasting because of him. Help us worship you and honor you because of these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are so blessed to be together to study God's Word. Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 27. A little else in this world brings me greater joy than to study and preach God's Word because, it in, because in God's Word is the Holy Spirit power for salvation and sanctification. There's not one person in this room that doesn't need that power. So it always brings me joy, joy to be here, joy even when we're studying the darkest moment in human history. The evil in this world perpetrated by humans is unthinkable. If you just take a few minutes to ponder all that humans have done, you'll realize the horrors of which the human race is guilty. The worst kinds of these horrors are things committed against one another, and the worst kind of evil that we commit against one another is when we commit evil against those who are innocent. I think this is what makes abortion so repugnant. Now, I'm not here to lay down guilt. I know there's probably someone here or Maybe several of you may have had an abortion. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or condemn you. There's always joy and peace in Jesus Christ from anything you've done in the past. I'm simply talking about the overall gross sin that this is. It's the grossest when we attack those who are in their most innocent, vulnerable, helpless status of life. And that's where these children live, in the womb of their mother. We're discovering, it seems like every year we discover that it's earlier that children feel pain, that these children have emotions. And for the sake of convenience, doctors and politicians have tried to convince people, probably for the sake of money as well, have tried to convince our country and have successfully convinced about half our country that it's okay to literally reach inside the womb and tear these children limb from limb. All the while, tens of thousands of people who can't have babies are told to wait until they can uh, adopt somebody. So the worst kind of sins are sins against the innocent. But there's someone who was even more innocent than an unborn child. Or even an unborn child, if you wait long enough, that child will be born and you'll begin to see the effects of sin on their heart, the, the effects of original sin that they carried even in that womb. Or even when a child 
is seemingly innocent, seemingly blameless, he proves in time that they are not innocent. Jesus Christ, on the other, other hand, is infinitely more innocent even than an unborn child. He had no sin nature. He was not affected by the fall. He was formed in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, so he was untouched by original sin. On top of that, Jesus is God of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and so he's not only infinitely innocent, he's infinitely holy. And it wasn't long after his birth that his holiness and his perfection, his innocence began to shine forth. These last five years in our study of Matthew, we've seen His holiness shine brightly as He walked and talked and ministered. Jesus had infinite empathy and kindness. He wept over the condition of the nation, of the sin-bound condition of humanity. Jesus had infinite love. He loved even His enemies those who hated Him, those who persecuted Him. And when He spoke, even against the, the Pharisees and scribes and those who would kill Him, he, he gave them the hard truth, the only thing they could hear that would, if they responded to, could save them. He demonstrated His infinite zeal for truth by knowing it and proclaiming it faithfully. He had infinite joy, a joy that He maintained even while He was being destroyed on the cross. He had infinite self-control, never yielding to any temptation that Satan or the world brought to Him. So here is this man who is the only true holy man ever to live, the only truly innocent person to ever live, never showing Sin, only love and joy and peace and patience, speaking only truth, always walking in the Spirit, never committing one sin, not uttering one negative word. This is the promised one, the one God spoke of at the very beginning, promising redemption through Him who would be the new Adam. And what did we, the human race, do to the God-man, the only true infinitely innocent one. He tortured and killed him. You can think a lot of terrible things, horrifying sins humans commit against one another. Nothing comes close to what we did to the Son of God. This is truly the height of human evil. And this evil is a theme of Matthew chapter 27. This is the darkest chapter, I think, in the Bible. The saddest, most tragic moment in human history. We humans turned on the one who came to save. And as you read this chapter, as we've studied this chapter, in fact, you start to realize the layers and layers of evil aimed at the Holy One. We've discovered overt, gross sins, even subtle and so-called respectable sins, Lies, deception, rebellion, corruption, contempt, betrayal, denial, hatred, sin of selfish self-preservation, all of these things put Jesus on the cross. And it wasn't enough for them to just kill Him. No, there were hours upon hours of torture and mockery and scorn. And as Jesus hung there, His innocence and His holiness 
continued to shine. He was up there praying for the salvation, the forgiveness of even those who sinned against him. Well, Matthew has outlined the sins of Judas, the sins of the religious leaders, the sins of the disciples, even the sins of the fellow who claimed his innocence, Pilate. Matthew now is going to give us one final layer of evil that put Jesus on the cross. It really is all of these evil people together combined. Now that he'd been condemned, now that he'd been sentenced, what did they do? Well, they combined forces to torture and kill. Here in this passage, we have the soldiers who play sort of the, the, the most direct role in terms of torturing and killing the Son of God. We have an allusion here to Pontius Pilate, who still was playing a role in this. We have the religious leaders who mocked him. We have the crowd of people passing by also mocking him. And by negation, we have the disciples who were not even mentioned because they're not there. They had run away. Matthew's purpose is to show us all the evil necessary to put an innocent man, the only innocent man, to death. Well, let's read about this very sad time, Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 44. Follow along as we read about the crucifixion of Christ. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. When he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. There are three basic functions of this passage, three purposes, I believe, 
Matthew is getting into us, one, is that we would just know and see what happened in those horrors of the crucifixion. Two, is that we would, each of us, see that we too are guilty of Jesus' murder. Peter said to everyone on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was killed by your hands. This is the indiscriminate crowd, Acts 2, 23. And that's why showing us all these different kinds of sins, different layers of people and their sin, because we can identify with any number of these folks. The third function or purpose of this dark chapter is so that we would relish and cherish the beauty of the resurrection. There is no crown without the cross. There is no life without death. There is no discipleship without self-denial. That's why things like the social gospel or the prosperity gospel or the gospel of feminism or the gospel of dominion or the gospel of legalism and works righteousness, that's why all these false gospels are not just different versions or different facets of the one true gospel. No, they are indeed contrary to the true gospel. They start with affirmation and life and freedom and prosperity, but according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, they end in death. They are anathema and to be cursed. The true gospel is the opposite. You start by seeing yourself as a sinner who put Jesus on the cross. You see yourself among the mockers, among the proud, among the deceptive, among the self-serving, the angry mob. You acknowledge that you are guilty. I love that second verse of the Him, how deep the Father's love for us. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The gospel doesn't begin with you affirming your value, affirming your importance, affirming your freedom, your talent, your position, your accomplishments. It begins by admitting your guilt. Then and only then can you receive the gift of Christ, that He paid for sin, that He provided His righteousness, that He rose victorious over death and sin. So Matthew is taking us through this pattern. It starts with this darkness, this sin, this evil building and building and building before we come to the resurrection. Now, in the next part of Matthew 27, uh, Matthew focuses more on the actual death, what was happening, what was even Jesus saying there on the cross. At the end of the chapter, we see this sad burial scene. But like I said, most of this chapter is focused on this exponential growth of sin and depravity, sins committed by everyone who was involved there. So what I'd like to do today as we look at this last part of naming those people and those sins is just to actually name those sins, to identify some of those sins. Now, you may be able to identify it a little bit differently, maybe name some different sins, but I've read through this several times, obviously, and studied it, and I've come up with seven different sins here. As a Christian, we should continue in our repentance of these things. We continue to believe and trust that these things are no longer true of our nature, that God has changed us, and we rely on what God has accomplished in Christ on the cross. And if you're not a genuine believer, well, today is the day of salvation. Today would be a good day for you to place your trust in Jesus Christ that He paid for your sins. The soldiers are the ones who were tasked to execute, really to torture and execute Jesus. 
I read a description. I was reading about crucifixion, and I read a description, just a broad idea of crucifying. The author says this, in crucifying someone, no one was concerned with a quick and painless death. No one was concerned with the preservation of any measure of human dignity. Quite the opposite. Crucifiers sought an agonizing torture of complete humiliation that exceeds any other design for death that man has ever invented. Matthew 27 says, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So Pilate, as we have established, Pilate was a man who was more concerned about self-preservation, looking good before uh, Caesar or Tiberius. He didn't need the voice of reason. He didn't need the voice of, of logic or justice or truth. He only gave in to his selfish desires. He had an opportunity, several really, to release Jesus to do what is right, but he did not. And so he acquiesced to the cries of the crowd, and he handed Jesus over and commanded that he be scourged and crucified. And we saw this last time. We saw this humiliating torture, this scourging. Jesus would be tied to a pole, extended so his body was taut. The soldiers would take these whips, and they would remove his skin, essentially. And Jesus had blood oozing from everywhere when they took him down, and they put a rough robe on him. It's at this point that it says they took him to the governor's palace, and the whole battalion was there. That means probably several hundred soldiers were there. The word was, is spera, could be up to 600 soldiers. Most of these soldiers, as I looked into this, most of these soldiers would not have been Romans. They were not Latins. They were not from Italy. They would have been conscripted. They probably were Syrians. The Roman government liked to hire the Syrians to be soldiers down in Israel because they spoke Aramaic, just like the Jews did. And so these Syrian soldiers are down there. And what this means is that Jesus is nothing to them. They, they could care less about this guy. They don't know him. They had no gripe with him. He'd done nothing against them. He'd not been preaching against them or doing anything against them. They didn't know him. They didn't have some sort of accusation themselves. They're completely ignorant of him. The only thing they knew, thanks to Pilate, was that he claimed to be some sort of king. In fact, we know this is... Essentially, when Pilate commanded that little sign to be made, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Later on, as we see, it is placed above Him on the cross. Now, this idea became the source of their mockery and their torture. So they began to torture Jesus. Jesus was there, every nerve exposed, excruciating pain, trembling, quivering under the agony of the whole ordeal, and these soldiers were here to inflict more pain, to drag this out, to torture him. They don't know him. He's never offended them, never attacked them. He's never come against them. They have no feelings except for the vile joy of watching someone suffer. All they want to do is to be cruel and to inflict that cruelty upon Jesus. And that's what I wrote down for the first sin, cruelty. 
They were there for the fun of inflicting pain on another human. They'd done this many times before. I'm sure among them were seasoned, longtime soldiers who had crucified many. They were experts, so to speak. There are probably some younger soldiers as well who may have cringed a little bit, but due to peer pressure and what was expected of them, I'm sure they eagerly jumped in as well. They were learning how to be cruel. After they beat him, it says they took him down and they put a robe. The word indicates it's a rough outer robe. They placed it on him, verse 28, 29, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. There were a number of thorny bushes in Israel at that time. We don't know which one this would be. You have to realize, though, it must have been pretty significant thorns because it had to dig into his scalp in such a way that it would stay on his head throughout lots of torture and pain, even as he was being crucified. This crown, of course, was to simulate even Caesar himself who wore a crown. You've seen the pictures of Caesars. A lot of times they're not pictured as wearing the diademos, the crown of, of jewels and gold, but a lot of times Caesars would wear the stephanos, the, the victor's crown. And it would be made out of some foliage, some, some leaves usually. These are to represent victory. Caesar liked to wear those things because it would prove his victory in this world. Of course, in the minds of these vile soldiers, Jesus was a loser with a capital L. And so it was a big, hilarious joke to them to put a mock victor's crown on his head. They planted this on his head. They buried it into his scalp, watched the blood come down. Why? To scorn him. Well, this brings us to the second sin we see, and that is scorn. These wicked soldiers set up this scene of scorn and derision. Again, verse 29, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You get the picture. There's the crown. There's the scepter, the scepter for any king is to represent his authority and his power. And they knelt before him mocking. Ladies and gentlemen, 33 years before this, Christ sat on eternal divine throne, ruling the universe. He had spoken the world into existence. He had rained down his blessing upon all of creation, and then he had also rained down his justice. He had with God spoken the word and whole entire people groups could be swallowed up. In fact, at one point, the Godhead brought down justice upon the entire earth, killing everyone save one believing family. He could, at the blink of his eye, snuff out the existence of any one of those hundreds of soldiers. But Jesus was determined to keep his covenant. He carried out the covenant sealed in the Godhead before to demonstrate His glory, His justice, and His love. And He did that by humbling Himself to this very scorn, this very mockery. 
These bloodthirsty soldiers, they're not satisfied just to kill Jesus. They've got to mock Him. They must scorn Him. They must injure Him. They literally add insult to injury. As they're hurting Him, as they're hitting Him with that reed, they're laughing and joking and making a mockery of it. I mean, today we're guarded from executions, which are done painlessly and as humanely as possible, but not so then. These soldiers are cold, accustomed to this whole process. They turn into a big game. It's all about scorn and insults and abuse. Well, that's the third sin that I wrote down here, abuse. You could say, well, isn't this all abuse? Well, it is, but abuse has that additional nuance of of torture. It's not just a methodical process that they're sort of mindlessly going through this. It's a, it's a game, and it's the abuse of terror. They're hitting him, spitting on him, yelling at him, hazing him. You can imagine one of the soldiers perhaps hit him over and over and over with his fist and then reeled back as though he would hit him again just to watch Jesus flinch so he could mock him even more. Here they are, mocking, spitting, hitting this bloodied victim, grabbing that reed, hitting him on the head. We can take your scepter and smack you on the head with it, and you can do nothing about it. Jesus said nothing. He received all this abuse. Verse 31, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So this is just a matter of business for them. They are on a timetable. They've got to get to the business of putting him to death. At some point, you have to transition from the game to actually getting him dead. You have to get him on a crucifix. So they callously finished their abuse and went through the process of getting him on the cross. It laid on him the instrument of his death, the cross. It doesn't tell us this in Matthew, but the other gospel writers tell us that they laid on him the cross, and the word there could mean the entire cross, or it could just mean the cross beam, the center section. Of course, Jesus by this time was too weak to carry this, and so they grabbed someone else to do this. This is all just a matter of business for them. I would imagine throughout the process, these men maybe even discuss with one another as they mock Jesus, maybe taking turns and then stepping back into the shadows and discussing with one another what they're going to eat after this takes place, what their plans are, what they're going to do when they get out of the army, all this hateful callousness. Well, that's number four in terms of sin, callousness. Can you imagine the level of hard-heartedness it took to do this? Like I said, they'd done it many times before. What's one more? There's none of the so-called milk of human compassion here. No sense of mercy or relief or patience. I'm sure from a psychological standpoint, these, these men probably are more like serial killers than anything else totally callous, totally immune to human pain and suffering. 
And like I said, the other Gospels tell us that they laid the cross on Christ. They asked him to walk it to Golgotha. He, we know he stumbled. They conscripted this fellow named Simon, who was there for Passover. He was from North Africa, a place called Cyrene. Simon is named here. We don't know this for sure, but Simon is named here possibly because he later became a Christian. We're told in Acts when the people had gathered for Pentecost that there were many people from Cyrene. And so it's possible that Simon was either a follower of Christ then or perhaps later he became a follower of Christ. We don't know this for sure, but I can't think of another reason why Matthew would think it's important to name him. But he finished the trek. He carried Jesus' cross up to the place of crucifixion. This place was called Golgotha or Golgotha. That's from the Aramaic. It's just a transliteration. It's just they took the sounds of the Aramaic and made it into an English word, Golgotha. They did the same thing with Calvary. That's from the, the Latin idea. Both words, Calvary and Golgotha, or Golgotha, mean the same thing, place of the skull. It's possible that that place looked like a skull. In fact, there are a couple of different places in Jerusalem that hills that sort of look like a skull. Verse 34, it says they offered him wine to drink. So they get to the place of the skull, they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And this is what they would do for victims of crucifixion. Because the torture was so great, a lot of victims not being able to suffer that much pain would simply pass out. And so they would want to give the victim something that would just take at least a little bit of the edge off the pain. But they wouldn't just simply give them wine. They would mix it with gall as another form of torture. And most victims would greatly appreciate this and take this even if it tasted like bile, like gall. And they would take this just to take some of the pain away. Jesus tasted it. He did not want to reduce any kind of pain for himself. And so he spit it out and refused it. There at Golgotha, they laid him down on the cross, which was on the ground, and strapped him very firmly to the cross. Then they brought out rough, dull spikes, perhaps a quarter to a half an inch thick, five, six, seven inches long, and they nailed his body to the cross. One nail at the base of each hand, right between the radius and ulna. And then one, sometimes two, through the feet. Then they would untie him and they hoisted the cross up into a hole they had dug for that purpose. And oftentimes when they did this in crucifixion, the jarring of the cross falling into the hole would knock their joints, their, their bones out of joint. They hoisted Jesus up into the place, all his nerve endings exposed, screaming for relief. And at this point, they would consider him officially crucified. And this is when the real suffering would begin. As time went forward, his body would sag on the cross, the holes in his feet and his hands getting larger as the pressure built. And Jesus and other victims at this point would have understood his need to hoist upward in order to exhale. 
The body sagging there was sagging in such a way that it would compress his lungs. And so while he could inhale, he could not exhale without pushing on his wounds that were holding him to the cross. He hoisted himself up just to get the breath out and then dropped violently back down, dragging his back across the rough wood and inhaling again, all to do this over and over again. With every cycle, he got weaker and weaker, less able to let all the air out of his lungs. As time went on, medically speaking, his pericardium would burst, the lining around his heart would burst, and his body cavity would fill with fluid, which explains why later when they pierced his side, blood and water came out. Now, the Romans had perfected this. If they did a good job, they could actually keep someone up there for some time, several days. But these soldiers didn't care at all. Pure, unadulterated callousness, no kindness, not one bit of mercy. Verse 35, they sat down, they played a betting game for Jesus' effects. And so on top of all the callousness, there is contempt. They sat down, verse 36, and kept, kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Number five, another sin here is the sin of contempt. At Pilate's bidding, again, Pilate declared himself innocent. But at Pilate's bidding, they put this contemptuous sign, this sign of mockery and contempt above Jesus. They had nothing but empty hatred for Jesus, as did the leaders, as did the mob. You know, when you're mistreating someone, the temptation often is to justify your abuse of that person. You pile on contempt toward that person. So here they were mocking and deriding, probably saying, this guy is nuts. This guy is crazy. Matthew tells us that the other people around there joined in their contempt of Jesus. Verse 38, the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And he says at the very end, they also reviled him. Of course, we know that one of them had a change of heart at some point. So the robbers joined him, and verse 39, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, if you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Six, we see another form of scorn, and that is mockery. Here comes this mockery, not just from the heartless soldiers, but from the crowd, people walking by, wagging their heads, shouting things. We're told, like I said in the last verse, that even the criminals joined in this. And they picked up, again, a misrepresentation of something that Jesus had said early in His ministry, in fact, probably about three years before this. And it's something that was repeated in, verse, in chapter 26 as one of the accusations. We had these 
these false witnesses that were paid by the religious leaders to, to come and make some sort of accusation. And the best thing they could come up with is that Jesus, when He talked about His death and resurrection, He said, this, the temple will be destroyed and after three days I will raise it up. They didn't know what that mean, meant, but they decided to turn that into some sort of accusation. People ignored Jesus' explanation of this, and they turned it into a crime, and, and now it's a source of mockery. Jesus, we thought you were going to destroy the temple and build it up again. Why don't you hop off that cross, Mr. Powerful? Do what you said you're going to do. What's the matter? Cat got your tongue? These are the kind of things people are saying to him as he hoisted himself up and down trying to breathe. They added to the mockery, tagging on how Jesus answered Caiaphas. Remember when Caiaphas asked him, are you the Son of God? And Jesus responded, you have said so. And so these false interpretations, skewed words, they hung on to these things and they repeated in the night before and they repeated in that day. You're the Son of God. What's your problem? Well, it isn't too surprising that the chief priests jump in with all their retinue, jump in with all these people mocking. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Now we end this list of sins with the pinnacle sin of the religious leaders, hypocrisy. What we have here is a, a second layer of hypocrisy. Not only these wicked leaders, snakes, deceivers, wolves, hypocrites, not only were they whitewashed tombs themselves, they were wicked men and covered it up with false righteousness. They knew that that assessment of them was true. That's why we ha they hated Jesus. But now they decide to lie to themselves and to everyone around them by basically saying that Jesus himself is a hypocrite. He saved others, let him save himself. He's king, let him prove it. He trusts God, claims to be the son of God. He's a liar. Because if he were God, he would prove it to us. Now, these individuals are the ones who are called to lead the people to the very man they're mocking. But instead, they're leading them to hate him. They're leading the charge in their hatred and despise, despite of, and spite of Him. They feel powerful at this point. They feel like that they are in charge. They've finally gotten what they wanted. They wanted Him dead. They thought to destroy Him. And finally, mission accomplished. But he who sits on the throne laughs. For the very thing they did means victory. God was doing a work that no one could possibly have believed. In the middle of this murderous rage, in the midst of all this hatred and spite and depravity, in the height of human evil, God was providing redemption.
Jesus said, I would be lifted up. I'll draw all men to me, and those who look upon me and believe will be saved. So just like with every evil, God had purposed it and was using it to bless. What we have on the cross is the pinnacle, the consummation of human evil, but we also have on the cross a wonder of wonders. God is doing something to bring redemption to the human race. The Lamb of God is laying down His life for His sheep. And in the end, these people who claimed victory, who mocked, who derided, who scorned, who hated, who cursed Jesus, who spat upon Him with cruelty, these are the ones who would be the victims of God's wrath. And those who believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray that we can see Christ crucified and glorify Him for it. Father, we thank You for Your Son, what He accomplished on the cross, what a terrible, awful thing happened that day. All of human sin concentrated in the most horrifying, terrible act ever to be committed on the face of earth. And yet it's the very thing purposed by you to save your people. So may we thank you and rejoice. May we bless Jesus. May we run from our sin and honor Christ in our hearts. May we profess Him as our Lord and Savior and join His kingdom, Lord, that will be physically real one day. And may we join not those who mock, may we turn from that sin and turn and worship Christ, the Lamb who has been slain. Bless us in this effort, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Benediction is inspired from that uh, Old Testament reading, our Old Testament reading for the day in Habakkuk. Let us go now with hearts full of wonder that God has done a great work with Christ on the cross, and may we take the name of Jesus with us wherever we go. Amen.